You know, I think worrying is what you do when you run out of realistic things to do, right? So like if I'm, I'm, I don't know, worried about finances, for example, there's a bunch of discrete stuff that I could do. You know, I could talk to an accountant. I could work on my budget. I could, I don't know, whatever, come up with whatever system I need to. I could work on how I'm spending. Like there, there are practical things I could do. And I think sometimes we do those things and yet we're not satisfied. Um, and I think worrying is usually what happens when we run out of helpful things to do and yet we still haven't resolved it. And we just want to kind of keep going with it. That was Ben Eckstein, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. My guest today is Ben Eckstein, LCSW. Ben is a therapist specializing in the treatment of OCD, anxiety, and OC spectrum disorders. He is the owner and director of Bull City Anxiety and OCD Treatment Center in Durham, North Carolina, where I used to live. In addition to his clinical work, Ben is also an accomplished speaker, trainer, and is the author of the new book, Worrying is Optional. Break the cycle of anxiety and rumination that keeps you stuck. Some of the topics we explore in this episode include how Ben ended up writing this new book, Worrying is Optional, the overlap between generalized anxiety disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder, how worrying can get in the way of other areas of life that are more important, uh, understanding the habitual nature of worry, the power of choosing what not to do the role of acceptance and commitment therapy or act in addressing worry and rumination and Ben's background working in a residential treatment center for OCD. Uh, this was such a fun conversation for me. Uh, as you'll hear later in the conversation, I actually was able to receive training from Ben when I was living down in North Carolina. And, uh, that was a huge moment in my career that really sparked my interest, uh, in working with, people who struggle with OCD and anxiety disorders. Um, and so, yeah, it was super cool to get to have this come full circle and check out Ben's new book. And I think you're really going to enjoy hearing Ben's perspective and learning a little bit more about worrying. And as always, thank you for being here and listening to the show. I've been incredibly energized by the podcast lately, and I have so many great episodes lined up. Uh, I can't wait to have those conversations and share them with you. Um, yeah, I have been really getting in touch with my own values and what's most important to me and kind of pushing away some other things in my life that aren't as important. And I've realized that this podcast is one of the things I care most about. And so I'm going to be putting in a lot more of my time and energy into doing this. And after being encouraged by some people over the past couple of years to have a way to donate to the podcast. I finally set something up for that. 
it's through buy me a coffee. I'll have a link in the show notes and of course no expectations around that. But if you'd like to have a way to support the show more directly and help me see this goal through and cover some of the costs of running a podcast, that would be really cool. But you simply being here and listening to the show is more than enough and truly means a lot to me. Uh, I look forward to continuing to add value to your lives through these conversations. Um, yeah. Thank you everyone. And without any further delay, why don't we get into the episode with Ben Eckstein? Thanks again, Ben. I've been looking forward to this, both just to reconnect with you personally and then talk about your new book. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. What a big accomplishment to write a book. I'm always so amazed when people do that. Like, what's it? Is this the first book you've written? It is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's feeling pretty cool, I have to say. Uh, yeah, it uh, definitely feels, uh, yeah, like an accomplishment. I think that's right. Uh, yeah, I think there are only so many of these things in life where you dedicate a chunk of time to working on something and kind of see it come to fruition. So, yeah, it's been nice to go through that process yeah how how did you end up on this topic out of like all the different ideas that probably interest you yeah it's a good question yeah so I I think I've always kind of wanted to write a book um and that I was I was a psychology major which tracks it's on brand but I was an English minor and so yeah I think I've always kind of had that idea of like yeah I probably could do either of these things and be pretty happy uh, so yeah, I think it's something I've always wanted to do, and I was actually starting to think about it. I was kind of gathering some ideas and kind of working on sort of a proposal. I think I had in mind more of a sort of explicitly OCD-focused book. Um, but as luck would have it, I ended up giving a talk at ADAA, um, the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. Uh, so yeah, their conference and after the talk, a publisher came up to me and was like, hey, you should write a book about that. So I was like, no, okay, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, so yeah, the talk was really all about kind of OCD and GAD and kind of uh, really kind of dismantling some of these, I don't know, sort of the way that these things are really siloed into really explicitly different things and talking about some of the overlap there. And then sort of the ramifications of that for treatment, you know, that we have such a specific treatment for OCD and it's very different than the treatment for GAD. And yet these things are really similar. And so it's sort of a pitch for kind of blending the two a little bit more. Um, and yeah, I think the publisher liked that idea and I kind of expanded it into a book. Um, so yeah, that's where it came from. It was just sort of a talk that ended up getting legs and turning into something else. Oh, that's really cool. I guess going off of that, what... What did you explore in that talk around how like OCD and generalized anxiety, like, could you talk a little bit more about that? So with OCD, I think everybody's pretty familiar with those really tangible compulsions, you know, so there's just that OCD 101 kind of thing. There are obsessions and there are compulsions. Uh, so if the obsession is, oh, I'm worried I'm going to get sick from touching that doorknob, then the compulsion would be washing your hands or avoiding or whatever, right? These, these really tangible things. But then we also know with OCD there are mental compulsions. So there are all sorts of things that people do that kind of have that same function. You know, So I think if we're defining a compulsion as anything that really reduces or prevents anxiety or distress, 
then people also do these mental processes. So I, I think there are those more overt mental compulsions. So things like thinking a neutralizing thought or needing to mentally count to a certain number, right? There are these kind of things that people do in their heads. But then there are also, you know, the more subtle things. So even with something like contamination that I think is always sort of the hallmark of those really tangible compulsions, but even there, there's this mental tracking of what has touched what, and there's this kind of crunching, crunching the numbers, analyzing, you know, how risky is it to do this or that? And so I think there really end up being a lot of these essentially mental compulsions, even with something like contamination. And so I think what we are often doing with OCD is we're sort of drawing this line. We're saying, hey, there's this intrusive thought. There's some thought that shows up. That's the obsession. And then there are these subsequent mental acts or mental compulsions that follow. And I think if we think about something like GAD and worrying, we kind of have the same breakdown, right? There is worry. There's some initial thought. And then there's that active process of worrying, um, which is, yeah, meant to relieve distress, find certainty, eliminate that just that not just right kind of feeling. Um, so yeah, I think there's just a lot of overlap there. And I, I think, and I, I appreciate, I think there are times where these things do indeed look really different. I don't, I don't mean to say that it, it, there is no difference. These things are, are exactly the same thing, but I just think there's a lot of overlap. And I think that idea of, oh, you know, OCD, we just treat behaviorally and GAD, we just treat with kind of traditional CBT. You know, I think that yeah, again, that really distinct boundary between the two, I personally don't think makes as much sense. You know, I think there's a little bit of room for cognitive work with OCD. I think there's room for behavioral work with GAD, you know, that I think we can kind of intermingle these things. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the image that pops up, it's almost like those, those two share a very similar underlying process, but if it's on a spectrum, the content kind of changes on one end to the other. I always think about some of these distinctions that people talk about a lot with GAD. So, or I guess with GAD and OCD. That I, you know, I think with OCD, we're often saying, you know, that there's something unrealistic about it, right? Like that that idea of checking a lock twenty times, washing your hands for three hours, right? Like this is not a realistic way to address the fear. And. And, yeah, and then with GAD, we're talking about kind of like, you know, hey, these are indeed realistic concerns. They're everyday worries like finances or, you know, stuff like that. But I actually, I, I think worrying is just as unrealistic in my mind. You know, that I, the example I usually use is, you know, if you're, I don't know, you have a test coming up on Friday, you really want to do well on that test and you have two options, you can worry about it or you can study for it. I think we would all agree like, yeah, worrying and studying, these are two distinctly different things. And it's kind of preposterous to think that worrying about the test is actually going to help you perform better. Mm. Um, and so I think that idea of, oh, well, worrying is realistic and performing compulsions is not, I don't, I don't know if I buy that. You know, I think we're then confusing worrying for things like problem solving or, you know, th these things that actually are useful, um, but that's not worrying. Worrying is a different thing altogether. Mm. Yeah. So what is worrying? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think, so, yeah, I think distinct from worry, right? So there's, we all have concerns in life. You know, I, I would hope that we do. You know, I think worrying is what you do when you run out of realistic things to do, right? And so, like, if I'm, I'm, I don't know, worried about finances, for example, there's a bunch of discrete stuff that I could do. You know, I could talk to an accountant. I could work on my budget. I could, I don't know, whatever, come up with whatever system I need to. I could work on how I'm spending. Like there, there are practical things I could do. 
And I think sometimes we do those things and yet we're not satisfied. Um, And I think worrying is usually what happens when we run out of helpful things to do and yet we still haven't resolved it. Mm. And we just want to kind of keep going with it. Um, And so I, I think one of the examples I use in my book is like, you know, if you're kid is out late and they haven't come home when they're supposed to, you know, sitting there worrying about them, that doesn't change any, doesn't make them safer, doesn't, doesn't do anything. That's very different than calling your kid, calling their friends, doing whatever, right? Taking some action. Uh, So yeah, I think worrying is this kind of like, I don't know, sort of superfluous thing that happens when we've already exhausted the, the reasonable things and now we're just getting into the unreasonable stuff when we're just still not satisfied. It doesn't feel right. Hmm. So can, does worrying capture more than cognitive processes too? Like in that finan- hmm. finance example, and that's maybe where this com- compulsion, OCD, generalized anxiety, worrying thing happens. You know, I have work with clients that maybe are worried about finances and then Worrying gets accompanied by mindlessly running spreadsheets on their budget that don't actually lead to any new information or checking their bank account without any real purpose to it. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. When I think that, I think for me is where I think we have to, you know, I know know you talk a lot about act on on the podcast. And so I I think for me, that's a place where I think values are really important. Um, You know, that I think... I think so often, I think with both things like GAD and OCD, you know, I think there can be this like really singular focus on this one thing at the cost of all these other things, Mm. right? And so like, yeah, as, well, I think it's reasonable to be concerned about finances. Sure, that that makes sense. You know, I think we don't want to do it to the degree that it's really starting to interfere with these other aspects of our lives and where it's starting to kind of diverge from that sort of valued place that we want it to hold. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that is sometimes really dissatisfying and I, maybe just to depart from the the finance example, I, a thing that I think about a lot is like, uh, I have a bunch of young kids and so I spend a lot of time doing that and I, I don't spend as much time hanging out with friends or doing hobbies or getting as much exercise as I would like, right. That I, I am having to sacrifice from these different areas in my life and I feel sad about that. I would like to be able to do those things. You know, I think for me, I think that's kind of one of the biggest kind of tragedies of our lives. Like we just, we can't do it all, you know, that we have to make these sacrifices and we have to grieve the loss of these things that we don't get to do. Um, But I, when I sit back and think about that, I'm able to say, well, hey, this is a season of my life where I, that is the valued decision that I want to make. And so even though I value friendships and hobbies and all those things, I, I'm, as I kind of divvy up my life, as I do that, you know, the kind of values pie chart kind of thing, right? Like that, I, I think I do have the balance that I want, even if I am disappointed that, you know, the slice of pie that's 10% of my time is only 10%. And I wish they could all be hundred percent, but they can't be. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I think we, we don't want to get too stuck on these things. And I think that that for me is where that worrying comes in. It's when we're not accepting, hey, we have to grieve the loss of this thing. We don't get to have it all. We don't get to know all the answers. We don't get to have all of these things aligned the way that we would want. Um, and just think about that uh, like parenting example. Yeah, I, I'm sure that parent values safety and they want their kids to be okay. They also probably value 
I don't know, allowing their kids to have some independence and getting some sleep and right. Like it's, it's, we have to find a balance here. And I, I think it's really hard, but I think it's a thing we have to kind of stop and get really intentional about and just making sure that what we are doing and how we're living our lives actually aligns in that proportional way Mm. that we want it to. Yeah. I imagine it can be really powerful for somebody to even just acknowledge that and real and acknowledge how much time and energy is being spent on worrying because people who really struggle with it, it can be a pretty pervasive thing. Yeah. 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 I, it's one of those exercises that I, I always kind of struggle with, you know, cause I, I want people to have this sort of realistic accounting of their behavior, you know, to be able to really stop and look at it and see the true cost of, of worrying, you know, and I think a lot of times it is a thing that takes a ton of time and really gives you nothing in return. (laughs) You know, that I I think it's just, it's, uh, I, I think almost by definition, it, it, it is about that point of diminishing returns, you know, that I think when you're getting returns, we're probably still in that problem solving effective strategy kind of place, but worrying, again, almost by definition, is this sort of superfluous thing, right? Like it has stopped being effective. Um, and so, yeah, I think there is a lot of, I would say, wasted time. And I, I think that can be painful to acknowledge. Um, but I think it is important. Mm. Yeah, because I can remember so clearly many times, and I, you know, it can still pop up, but especially when I was younger and not aware of these things, how full experiences and events could just barely be taken in because there's just this thing happening in your head the whole time about something that doesn't have anything to do about the situation that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. It, when I, I think one of the things that I think is tricky with worrying is that it does happen so automatically for a lot of people, you know, and, and I think, I, I think it's really important to note that automatic is not the same as, inevitable, right? Like that, I, I think that doesn't mean it's not something you can work on and get better at and, and learn to manage, but I think it does happen pretty automatically for a lot of people. And so, yeah, I think it's hard when you have those, those moments where you really want to be present and yet your mind is doing something else and you have to kind of rein it in and take a step back and notice what it's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That kind of leads into when I was you know, reflecting on your book and even the title worrying is optional, uh, implied in that is the choice around it. Yeah. And I imagine that's part of what the work is with people is recognizing there's choice there. Yeah. Can you yeah. speak a little bit about that? Yeah. It, it is a thing that I talk about a lot in the book and I think is really important is just to notice that this is a habit in a lot of ways. And I, and I, I think, in general with something like a more traditional CBT or ERP in the case of OCD, uh, we're not doing a lot to address that kind of habit component of it. And I, you know, I'll say my, I I think elevator pitch for this book, it would be a terrible elevator pitch because no one, no one would know what I'm talking about. But, (laughs) but I, I think about, uh, the comb model, so it's like the comprehensive behavioral model for BFRBs for Mm. body focused repetitive behaviors. And, so for things like skin picking and hair pulling, the sort of first real treatment that people did was called habit reversal, right? So it's all about kind of awareness training and then finding these competing behaviors to sort of interfere with those repetitive behaviors that people are doing. 
But then the comb model sort of takes that and expands it, right? So it's sort of saying like, yeah, we have this, we, we need to build awareness. There is this piece of it that's about a habit. But then there are these other aspects of it, right? So we have to kind of zoom out and look at, well, you know, what are the thoughts coming along with this? What are the feelings that go with it? What are the actual circumstances, the environment, the place, the the, the physical things that you're doing, right? Like the, it really takes this more comprehensive approach to it. And I think my elevator pitch would be like, yeah, that's what we have to do for worrying, right? Like that it is, it is overly simplified to say, hey, it's just this one thing. It's just a habit or it's just about anxiety or it's just about uncertainty. Um, I think it's about a lot of different things. And I think managing worry means you have to kind of look under the hood of your own worry and figure out what are the processes driving your worry. And I think for most people, habit is one of those things, right? It's just a thing that you've gotten accustomed to doing and you're going to have to practice building awareness of it. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is a pretty important first component. Um, mm. And it, I, and I'll say, I, I think I borrow some also from sort of the work around self-compassion where, you know, I think those sort of main tenets of self-compassion, the first one we start with is mindfulness, right? It's kind of this idea of like, well, before you can practice being kind to yourself, before you can connect with common humanity, like you have to be in a place where you can notice what's going on and make space for that feeling. And I think the same thing is true for worry. You know, before we try any intervention, we need to be grounded to some degree. We need to be kind of aware of what's happening internally. Mm. Yeah. And with worry and all processes that take place under our own skin or in our minds, it can be so deceptive and you can go so long without even being aware it's happening. But if yeah. like these same exact things were happening externally, like if you just sat down and like typed out or wrote out all the things you were thinking when you were worrying, it'd, it'd look yeah. a lot different. Yes. Um, yeah, it's a, I think that diffusion essentially, right? Like being able to separate from it, I think is, it's really hard to do. Um, you know, I think it would be, it'd be a lot easier if, you know, we had this one inner monologue for all of the helpful things and then we had a different voice or, you know, if there was something else that was like, oh yeah, here's that voice again. Like, let's just, whatever, we don't have to pay attention to that part. That would be a lot easier, but it's all kind of blended together, you know, that I think we don't have that ability to just have that really black and white version of things in our minds. And so, yeah, I think it does mean having to kind of separate a bit and parse through it. I, I, you know, I think one of those really common interventions for worry is sort of setting aside worry time. Um, so usually the recommendation is, you know, throughout the day as these worries show up, you know, designate some time later in the day where you can sit there and kind of defer all of your worries to that time, which I think is fine. I think no, that can be helpful for a lot of people. Anytime I have people do that, I always add this tweak, which is that I want you not just to defer it to later, but I want you saying it out loud and I want you doing it in front of a mirror. Um, because I think, because I, I think we really want to emphasize that like this stuff is preposterous, right? Like that we can, when things bounce around in our head, we don't look at it from the same point of view and saying it out loud and having to look at yourself while you're saying it out loud. Most people abandon that pretty quickly because they, they recognize so much faster, you know, Oh yeah, this isn't helpful for anyone. Mm. Yeah, not that these two things are the same thing, but there often is an overlap in the Venn diagram of like people venting and worrying. And that's why I think so many people find it very unpleasant to be on the receiving end of people venting. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. 
Um, when I think there's just this recognition of, you know, this is kind of pointless, right? Like it's not, <laughs> it's not making anything better. And yeah, I, I, I appreciate. Hey, we all we all do it sometimes. I'm, I'm sure it can be helpful sometimes, but I I think it also can veer into like a more toxic and unhelpful place pretty quickly. So yeah, I think it's a thing we have to be pretty mindful of. What's the difference, or is it what's the difference between worrying and rumination? Is it the same yeah. thing? Yeah, I don't. You know, I think uh, it's a thing that I talk about in my book and saying like, yeah, you know, if you Google this stuff, you're going to get a thousand different answers. You know, so I think some people say. Uh, rumination is, you know, really just this kind of mental review that you are kind of churning through things that happened in the past. So it is kind of exclusively this past focused behavior. I don't know that I, uh, that I love that distinction personally. And and I, I personally kind of think of it as sort of synonymous, you know, that I think worrying is sort of an umbrella term. I think rumination is another just kind of umbrella term. Um, Mm. You know, I think there are some more specific ways of thinking about that. You know, so like mental review, for example, right? So I think that, yeah, that that is reviewing these past things. You know, I think that's often, you know, the stuff that we regret or we're going back through that conversation we just had, that kind of thing. Um, And then I think there's a lot of that kind of mental simulation of things, you know, and I think that's more that kind of analysis and yeah, just kind of, kind of getting stuck thinking. Um, and I, I, I generally prefer these broader versions of things just because I think I'm more interested in the function than I am in the label, you know, and I think whatever we call it, I think if, if your thinking has stopped being helpful, then we want to figure out a way to wrangle that back into something that is more helpful and I, I think it doesn't really matter what what version of it it is, what what brand. Yeah, yeah. Like you could just zoom out and call it all compulsive thinking. Or, yeah, right. You know, or like when I I like when uh, Eckhart Tolle or Tolle. I never actually. I don't know how to say his last name, <laughs> yeah, but uh, same. He'll just like he'll call it like people are just like addicted to thinking. Like that's yeah, another, you could just just kind of true. Like it, so many of so many of us can just get like lost in this like hypnotic reality in your own head and just get lost there. Yeah. Yeah. And I uh, agreed. And I, I think, and I like the addiction thing there. So like, I think similarly, right. Like it's a problem when it's a problem, right? Like Mm. I think there's, there's nothing wrong with thinking. And I, I, at least I would make the argument, you know, I think with substances, right. Like they're generally not just inherently Mm -hmm. bad or immoral, right. Like that. I think it's this, it's the impact of it. It's when those things stop fitting in your life or they're coming at some cost, they're having adverse consequences, right? You know, that I think it's really that context and function that makes it unhelpful. And I'd say the same thing of thinking, right? Like nothing wrong with thinking. I'm all for it. But but there are places where it stops being useful and it just doesn't fit for us anymore. Mm, Yeah. I've almost had to come like full circle with that being somebody for so many years when I was younger, just completely lost to then beginning a meditation practice in yoga and realizing how much nicer it was really being in the present moment. But then I think I went through a phase where I really unfairly pushed away thinking where like if I was on a hike and I wasn't really like present and being with the trees Mm -hmm. and the air around me and I was thinking that I almost like judged myself. But now it's this cool place where thoughts can be just as meaningful as the birds chirping if if it's being done in an in a mindful way, you know? 
Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And when I think there's no... <laughs> I, I It seems inevitable that we will all go through life and have these moments where we can reflect back saying, yeah, I was thinking too much or I was not thinking enough or, you know, that I think like trying to walk that perfect line just seems so impossible. And, I, you know, again, I think it's another one of those for me, just kind of tragedies like, yeah, we're all going to have regret. That's there's no way around that. And yeah, I think we can do our best yeah, to go on that hike and find the balance that works in the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, I think being able to nail that in some sort of, I don't know, enduring way, I think is, yeah, it's kind of impossible. Yeah. I think I really realized the value, uh, recently too it just reinforced how i can use thinking in a purposeful and meaningful way because i'm working on a new like album now for music Mm. and i only ever like wrote lyrics when i was sitting in front of a notepad or front of my computer with a guitar but i've been recently i have a lot of like melody and song structure flushed out but not lyrics and i'm trying to work on them and i realized i can use like using mine while like on a walk in a really meaningful way. And I came out of that with like a whole verse done in, in that will probably end up as the final verse. But up until that point, I had like these very arbitrary containers around when you do things like that. Yeah. I, I like that. Uh, it makes me think about, uh, I don't know if you saw Rick Rubin wrote a book mm, recently. Yeah, he's Have great. you seen that? Yeah. yeah he is. He's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing. But yeah, he talks a lot about that that kind of idea of saying like, hey, like this act of creating, it often requires some input, right? Like we're out in the world absorbing something, mm-hmm. nature, art, right? Like that there is something and we are the filter, right? We're, we're the conduit. It comes in through us and we output something else. We, we make art from that. Um, so yeah, I like that idea of like, yeah, we can be there in front of the notebook or whatever, but I think we also need some of those other moments of having it be this more interactive process. Yeah, and maybe the like integration of what coming full circle is being able to do that, but then also make a choice to stop when I pass like a really beautiful view and actually like take that in yeah. and then make the choice to do that where maybe for many years I felt like there wasn't even the option to switch into that. I like that. When I, it it's hard, right? So I think you can make those decisions in the moment and have that kind of agency to choose how you want to relate to these experiences in the moment. And, you know, I, I, I'm just thinking about like that example where like, yeah, you can sit there and take in the view and really just be present and absorb that. And then you'll lose the other stuff, right? Like, like by turning off that more kind of analytical piece of things like, well, yeah, that, that wasn't part of that moment now, which is fine, right? That it's the choice that makes sense in the moment, but yeah, it's, it's a loss either way, you know, that we, we can't really do both at the same time. Yeah. Well, it goes back to your previous point that we're always make, whenever we make choices, we're making choices to turn away from other things too. Yeah. I love, yep. uh, hopefully if it all works out, I'm going to, do you know, have you ever read the book or know about 4,000 weeks? You ever? Yes. Oliver Berkman. Yes. He's, he's most it. likely coming on the podcast. Oh, oh really? Ooh, yeah. That's if we can make it work, but I love that book because that really solidified some things for me around how, yeah, like to maybe own what you're choosing not to do more. Yes. Um, yeah, I, 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 I love that book also. And yeah, I think one of my favorite anecdotes from that, uh, he's talking about, uh, 
this story from Warren Buffett, which is mm. uh, whatever the source is, whatever it is. But I, but I, I think it, it is cool. So it's like this anecdote about Warren Buffett. He's on his plane, and you know the pilot says, you know, what's the key to a good life or success or something like that? And the answer is like, well, yeah, you make this list of all the things that are important to you, and you pick the top three or five. Or I, don't, I don't remember the number, but like you pick the top chunk, and you accept, hey, I am not going to do the rest of these things. And then I, I, and he kind of goes on to say, like, yeah, it's not, you know, I think we have to accept we're going to mourn the loss of, of all that stuff. We cannot do it all. But then also, you know, so if, I forgot what the number is, but if it's the top five, mm-hmm. he kind of makes this point of saying, you know, those items six through 10 or whatever, you're like, that's the biggest danger to you completing items one through five, right? Yes. It's, it's getting stuck in those things that you genuinely do want to do, but you just can't do it all. Yes. Um, and I, yeah, I think that's, I, I really appreciate that. And I, again, I think it drives home that idea of, you know, there is real loss here that we have to grapple with and ultimately accept. Yeah, it's so true because a lot of times the feeling like you're obligated to attend to six through 10 really prevents you from showing up to one through three in the way that you want. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's almost like, yeah, it's even like with friends. Like you can only have so many close friends that you see regularly. There's only so many yeah, free right. open days. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I think that's spot on, right? You know, I think you can be a good friend to a few people or a, a terrible friend to a bunch of people. And <laughs> yeah, I think at some point that just doesn't make sense anymore. Wow. I'm curious what it was like. This is your first time writing a, a book. Like, did you enjoy writing before taking on this endeavor? Yeah, I did. I'll say it's a thing that I hadn't done a ton of in a while. I mean, I, you know, in school, I did plenty of writing. Um, But since school, I had not done a ton. And so I think as I was starting to kind of ponder the idea of a book, I started doing like one of those psychology today, like, I think they call it like expert blogs. And Mm. so, yeah, just there's like little essays on this or that. and so, yeah, I think that for me was a way of kind of just testing out, you know, do I actually want to do this? Do I like it? You know, will that be interesting for me? Uh, and I did really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll say I, so I see clients uh, Monday through Thursday. And so I generally have Fridays to do other things. And for years I have had kids who were not old enough to be in school. So those Fridays off were really just me hanging out with my kids. And so it was really just this past year that our youngest kid was in school. And now those Fridays were time for me to really do whatever it is that I wanted to do. Um, And I have always been really envious of those people like sitting in coffee shops on their laptops, kind of doing whatever. I I always kind of, you know, I sit in an (laughs) office all day. So I drive by that. I'm like, oh, that's, that's the life right there. I don't know what they're doing. It looks really cool. I want to be doing that. Um, and I will say, I really love it. I go to coffee shops, I bring my laptop, I have coffee, I have food and I, yeah, it's just, it's really lovely to have that time just to kind of, yeah, have, be more deeply immersed in it. You know, that I, I think, I, I don't know, I just, I tend to be pretty busy and I have young kids. So like, it's hard to get those big chunks of time to really be more deeply immersed in something. And I, I think for me, writing, uh, it's hard for me to really get into it with 
a half an hour with an mm. hour, right? Like that I, I can't squeeze it between clients, right? Like it, it just doesn't fit very well for me. I have a really hard time doing that. Um, so yeah, it has been really nice to have, have that chunk of time to really focus on it. So yeah, um, I've enjoyed it. That's cool. So yeah. <laughs> how, how do you, how does that work then? So like when you, you get approached by a publisher about that topic, how do you, not necessarily the behind the scenes of the business, but like your writing process, like how does that work? Where do you, where do you even begin writing a book? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, and I think this is answers a little bit of both kind of the process with publishing and my own process. And you know, that I think you really do need kind of the structure, right? Like you need some kind of outline. And so I think I, the first chunk of it was really just thinking about, you know, what's, what's the approach, you know, I have all these ideas about worry and worrying and how we can integrate some of these different treatment models to kind of have that more comprehensive approach to it. And then, yeah, I mean, I think just the first part I think for me was really just kind of organizing the structure of that and thinking about how to frame it in a way that kind of makes sense as a reader to kind of move through it. And then I think, yeah, you have to think about the content you want in there and yeah, what that, what that model really looks like. I, you know, I think the thing that I struggled with the most, uh, you know, I think like most people, you know, you kind of do the things that you're interested in first and Mm. the things that are harder usually are last. And so, you know, I I think it's a lovely book, but, you know, I had some chapters that I was like really excited to write and was like, you know, I sat down and I kind of banged it out because I was just in it and immersed in it. And there were others that were just, they were more of a labor, right? Like where you really had to, had to slow it down and had to do a little more research for it. And, you know, I think some of those things felt, uh, felt harder just because I think it, it was more work and was less just kind of that more kind of flow state kind of way of doing it. Mm, Yeah. It's similar with music. There's some things that just Mm. kind of flow out and then there's other stuff that's like just building a house brick by brick. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Um, I know one of the models you touch on in there is act and maybe you could like kind of clear up some, I don't know, misconceptions or stuff around act when it comes to worrying and rumination. There's, Mm. There's, I see sometimes in like certain posts or when people talk about ACT around how it's like has a sh- limitation and not really addressing rumination or worrying. I don't see it that way because I huh. see it as part of diffusion and like present moment awareness and even seeing it as a behavior that you can commit to not doing it or doing it. Like, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of that um, as, as well. Like, is that something addressed or something you've heard of prior to doing all this? Yeah, I've heard that critique. Um, and I agree. I don't, I don't feel that way. I I don't think that I've ever felt that way. And I, and I'll concede, you know, that I think maybe part of that is that I, I think I came to act after already being pretty immersed in sort of CBT and ERP for OCD. Um, Mm. and so I think just that framework where we're already thinking about thoughts essentially as behaviors. Um, and so, yeah, I think for me that was a really easy transition to make to then use that act framework. So I I think just having that more behavioral contextual kind of frame, I think made it feel like a better fit for me. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think you nailed it. You know, that I, I think, uh, worrying 
is this mental behavior that people do? And so, yeah, I think we we do need diffusion and present moment awareness. And that's uh, the thing I talk about a lot in the book is just uh, figuring out how do we get some space to notice these internal experiences that we're having um, and then use that awareness to then pivot to something that is a better fit. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think being able to diffuse, I think, is this sort of necessary prerequisite. Um, and I think there are lots of different ways to do that. Um, but yeah, I don't personally really make much of a distinction from, yeah, any thought to fusion, whether it's an obsession or any uh, depressive thought, uh, an anxious thought, I, I don't think it really matters. Um, you know, again, I, I always take a much more of that kind of functional perspective of, you know, if this thought is unhelpful for you, if it's not in line with how you want to be showing up in the moment, then we're going to get some space from it and figure out how to move forward. Mm, yeah, that's cool to hear you say all that. Yeah, maybe there's it comes from a lack of understanding or not being explicit in training around thinking being a behavior or the difference between like thoughts and thinking is something I feel like is important that, yeah, Yeah. there should be kind of unconditional acceptance and diffusion from thoughts, but then thinking is a behavior and a choice that we can engage anytime. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think just that distinction between those, that automatic kind of unbidden, unwanted thought that shows up, yeah, versus the active process and i i i think a lot of that thought in these places where we get lost in it where it's we're just churning it's unhelpful it's ineffective yeah i don't think we want to just say okay leave that alone you know i think there's a space for saying hey we're accepting the presence of it but that doesn't mean we continue to engage with it mm-hmm. and yeah i think those are two different things um I really like uh, some of the work that people talk about in terms of kind of attention and focus. And I think for me that really applies here and saying, you know, there is this, these kind of different aspects of our perception in that we initially become aware of something. And in that moment where we become aware of it, we kind of put our attention or focus on it. And then there's another thing where we, decide to engage and mm. do something with it. Um, and I think being able to kind of slow it all down and make these distinctions, you know, so right now in this moment, I am aware of tons of different things, the sights around me, the sound sounds in the background, the feel of my pants or my seat or my headphones or whatever, right. That I, I have tons of awareness. My brain's job is to cull that down into relevant things that might be useful. I'm going to try to direct my attention to the conversation that we're having. Um, but of course, my attention's going to get pulled away. And in those moments, I'm going to gently bring it back to the thing that I'm doing. Um, you know, I think that active version of it, though, where we're not just putting attention on something, but we're actively trying to solve it. Um, mm. That's a really different thing. Mm. So yeah, I, the example I usually use is kind of like a math problem. And this comes easy to me as somebody who's not particularly good at math. But if you <laughs> throw a math problem in front of me, I am very capable of seeing that problem, putting my attention on it and saying like, I don't know the answer and I'm not going to try to figure it out. Right? Like I don't have to 
engage with it just because I became aware of it or even because my attention was directed to it. And so I think it's really that active engagement part that, that we're trying to target, you know, mm-hmm. saying, hey, we, we don't need to do that part of it. We can leave it unsolved. We don't have to analyze or make meaning of it. We can just let it be kind of raw data that has not been analyzed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, I'll probably mention it in the intro, but when I went through training with you, couple times and uh, that was something you taught in that training and I use it all the time it's one of like, yeah. the best oh, ways awesome. to just help somebody acknowledge that you can have an unsolved problem in front of you and then choose to engage in it and then you can choose to stop even when it's somewhat solved and then we sort of keep yeah. going with it I'm sure you taught me this part too but I tend to keep going with it and recognize with a math problem you can get to this and um, answer that's very satisfying and you can just like leave it alone and your mind doesn't want to keep going back because there's a real answer to it but a lot of the things we get stuck on in our mind have no answer to it so it can just go forever because the variables are infinite yep um yeah i it's funny i just gave a talk for the ocd conference a couple weeks ago and had this kind of list of all these different kind of problems so it was like i don't know uh, Amelia, where's Amelia Earhart and what was the meaning of the end of the Sopranos and what happened to that lost sock in the laundry, right? Like just all these sort of unsolved, ambiguous kinds of things. And just kind of noticing how like, yes, some of these things really pull at you and some of them don't as much. You know, the lost sock for me, I don't really care that much. It's whatever. I don't think about it much. The ending of the Sopranos, like, oh, that one got me for a little while. I feel like I've I've kind of moved on. But, like, for a while, that was pulling at me. Um, and so, yeah, I think just we have all of these things in our lives. Some of them are going to pull at us more than others. But I think we we want to make space for that feeling. We want to acknowledge it. We need to accept it. You know, and I, I really like that distinction with the math problem where, hey, these things that have a discrete answer – Yeah, problem solving is a great approach to that. But when we know these things don't have an answer or when we've gotten to the point where we're saying, hey, it's not worthwhile to pursue an answer anymore, um, I think that's the point where we have to say, okay, I'm I'm going to move on and I'm going to make room for all the pain that comes with that. Mm. Yeah, I first um, got connected with you when I was living in North Carolina and like knew knew of you as uh, someone really wise in the OCD field and... I was so uh, grateful to get to do training with you. It really, really helped at that point in my career. What, uh, how'd you get to where you were with all this stuff? Like, what, what's your background? I'm sure I, I know a little yeah. bit, but didn't you work in a residential or? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I really stumbled into it. Um, and I, it's funny, I think about this a lot because I, I don't know, I feel like I got very, very lucky in all sorts of things just kind of aligning and that, yeah, so I worked at uh, McLean Hospital's OCD Institute, which is a residential OCD program in Boston. Um, And I'll be honest, I don't know why they gave me that job. I didn't have, I didn't have (laughs) a a ton of OCD experience prior to that. And, And I think that's kind of the answer is I think they were almost looking for somebody without these sort of, uh, without having sort of solidified ideas about what to do with this. You know, I think they wanted someone fresh and I was fresh. Um, But I think it really just fit for me in so many ways. And I really took to it. And I think part of that is that my job prior to that was in inpatient psych at a Mm. public hospital in Brooklyn. Um, And I, I think 
inpatient psych is incredibly valuable and important and it's a service that we need to keep people safe when they need to be safe. Uh, but it was really hard because mm-hmm. it was sort of a, it's a hospital in a really tough neighborhood. There are a lot of systemic issues. It was kind of a revolving door of people coming in, getting stable and going back out to the community where they didn't have the resources they needed and inevitably kind of coming back. And it was just really hard to feel like I was making much of a difference with these giant systemic issues in front of me. And so I think for me, that juxtaposition of going from that job and feeling kind of disempowered and like not very effective, and then going into this other job where people are coming in debilitated from OCD and leaving with this like new lease on life and having this life-saving treatment. And I think just that feeling of, wow, like this is really making a difference and helping people, um, I think feels amazing. I think it felt especially amazing with that juxtaposition of that Mm. previous job. Um, And then I think I also just took to it because I think it's, I, I always kind of think of it as like, these are like this population folks with OCD are people who, uh, who just care a lot. Um, right. Like that they care. It's like pathological care, right? Like they Mm. are so concerned with being good and doing the right thing, keeping people safe, right? Like that is entirely comprised of people who are just so willing to go the extra mile in this case, to their own detriment in ways where it's sometimes destroying their life, but in the interest of trying to be good. And, you know, I think just for me that, that caring just that, I don't know, it it really resonates with me that, you know, that these are, are people who I are really just so dedicated to wanting to be good. And it's very easy for me as a clinician to want to help someone who just, Mm. who, who cares so much in that way. Um, So, yeah, I kind of fell into it, um, I think, for all these reasons. Um, And I think I think residential treatment, I think, is a really sort of unique opportunity to work with hundreds of people with OCD. You know, that I I think it's really difficult to get that experience in private practice um, because you just don't have that volume of people. Um, And I think to be able to do it with that treatment team approach with some of the world's foremost experts in OCD. Um, you know, I think that was a really form- formative experience for me. Um, and that's also where I got into act as well. Um, cause I think that was, uh, is interesting. And my time at McLean was sort of a time where I think they were sort of transitioning a little bit from this very traditional ERP kind of model to more of an act informed model of, of treatment. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was really, great for me to work with some of the folks there who are, uh, yeah, I learned a lot from Lisa Coyne's a big one who's in Boston, but yeah, there's a New England ACT chapter uh, that I was a part of there. Um, Yeah, and then after I left, uh, I think I loved that job so much that I didn't ever want to work for anyone else again. (laughs) And so I just decided to start my own practice, mostly just out of stubbornness. and so, yeah, now my practice is all anxiety and OCD, pretty wow. much. Yeah, thanks for sharing all that. Yeah, Lisa's really cool. She was on the podcast a while back. Um, yeah. Could, could you give us a, me, us, however you want to phrase it, <laughs> can you give us a, a peek behind the curtain of what, like, residential OCD treatment's like? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, 
You know, I think, so a day in the life, uh, it's a bunch of exposure. Um, so uh, usually that sort of formalized exposure, there's about two hours of coached exposure and response prevention, and then usually another two hours of a more self-directed exposure and response prevention. Um, but I, I would say that's probably uh, downplaying it because I think for a lot of people coming there, just walking in the door is yes. exposure. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is, it's, it's intensive. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of exposure. And then, of course, there are, there are groups, there are different psychoeducational things, there are outings, and, you know, there, there's a lot going on. Um, but I also think, I, well, I, I, think, I think they do excellent, excellent treatment there. I also think a big part of what makes that place special and what makes it really effective for people is just kind of the community of it. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people go there having never met another person who had OCD, feeling really isolated, feeling alone, feeling like they are a monster for having these thoughts that they have never told anyone else about. And so, yeah, I think just that recognition of, hey, there are all these other people here who actually get it. Um, mm-hmm. And I also, even for myself, I don't have OCD. I can lecture about it forever. I can give you a PowerPoint, right? I can talk all about it. But that's really different than saying, like, yeah, I know that experience. And, mm. you know, of course, I feel anxiety like every other human being, but uh, it's, it is it is different. And so, yeah, I think to be able to go to a place where you actually feel understood and connected with other people, I think, is really invaluable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, Thanks for doing this. Anything else you wanted to add about your book or what you're up to? Um, oh, I think we covered it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, the book, uh, it's called Worrying is Optional. It's available now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's fun. I think it, uh, um, it just came out recently, so I'm still kind of eagerly awaiting to see what everybody makes of it and to get some of that feedback. But uh, I'm excited for it. I. Uh, and yeah, I have to figure out what I'm going to write about next. Oh, cool! Well, thanks so yeah. much. And it's, uh, man, I, I really admire you doing that, especially you being someone I, I knew personally. I had the last guest I had on the episode will be out before yours was Jill Stoddard, who just wrote mm, a book, yeah. and I had a chance to get to know her a little bit before that was released. And it's so cool reading books by people you know. It's like I don't know. I always just kind of felt like people who wrote books were these other class of people and uh, I don't know it's just really cool to see you do something like that thank you I really appreciate that yeah all right thanks Ben yeah thank you it's got me out of my mind it's got me seeing trees breathe it's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me it's got me feeling the love that I bottled so deep when the entire world kept feeding on my grief Take a deep breath and try to open my soul 
Yes, I know I'll never know But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath And try to open my soul Oh, yes, I know I'll never know But I can close my eyes Take a deep breath And try to open my soul 